can try and prove that you're pressed in any way, but if you don't have like something that's laminated and it could be anything. <laughs> I was working for the Mid City Messenger, so I just put a, something I printed with yeah. E signing Robert Morris's signature in the inside of the lens press pass. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, an Orleans Parish judge denied the Cantrell administration's attempt to block an ongoing investigation by the city council into contract fixing allegations. A report by a state auditor concluded that teachers in New Orleans schools are four times more likely to be uncertified as compared to other teachers throughout the state. And the school district's property insurance is going way up. A federal court judge began to hear arguments in the remedy phase of a trial over health care. The trial is a continuation of a seven-year-old federal class action lawsuit filed by civil rights groups on behalf of all prisoners who are or will be incarcerated in the prison. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter, Michael Isaac Stein. Hey, Michael. Good morning. Education reporter, Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter, Nick Crastel. Hi, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. Good morning, Charles. Morning. Michael, Smart Cities continues to be in the news. An Orleans Parish judge ruled against Mayor LaToya Cantrell's administration in a hearing over city council subpoenas in the investigation into the smart cities contract fixing allegations first can you explain what this legal dispute is about yeah like you said we've covered this issue a lot in recent months um if you listen to this podcast you kind of have a lot of this background already but but you know just real quick here um you know we've been reporting for a while and the city council has been now been investigating um for weeks um allegations related to this you know sprawling smart cities project um, which was supposed to introduce new Wi-Fi services to the city while introducing thousands of new quote-unquote smart cities devices um, that would be used to collect data to improve city services and also raise new revenue for the city. Again, you know, I'll be brief here, but uh, you know, allegations came out um, about uh, uh, contract rigging. There were questions around a, a quote-unquote pro bono consultant who helped develop the project as well as city employees who have uh, started a side business and actually worked alongside some of the companies that won the public bid in New Orleans. And, you know, as all this information has come to light, the city council has kind of escalated their investigation into these allegations. And that, that kind of culminated with, with, you know, last month the city voted to launch a formal investigation and subpoenaed five uh, city officials related to this project. Now, what, what this lawsuit is about is basically the Cantrell administration trying to put an end to the council investigation. Um, the lawsuit specifically looks to uh, uh, basically have the court dismiss one out of five of these subpoenas. Um, but as we'll get into, the argument in the lawsuit, e- even more broadly than this one subpoena, is that the city council shouldn't be investigating this uh, at all, at least not right now. So um, that, that's broadly what, what the lawsuit was. Okay. And remind us, two two of the people who had been subpoenaed had complied, yes? Yeah. So out of the five 
Out of the five people who were subpoenaed, two have already responded. One has maybe responded. The council is still trying to figure out um, whether he is fully complied or not. Mm. Um, and two have not. Um, uh, one of them is the, uh, uh, the mayor's chief of staff, Clifton Davis, who is the person who brought the lawsuit. Um, the lawsuit only looked to dismiss that, that, um, that, that one subpoena against Mr. Davis. Okay. And what, is the, what was the Cantrell's admit, uh, the argument against the subpoenas being lawful? Yeah, you know, there, there, there's a few arguments in there, but I'll focus on the one that I think ultimately, you know, was the administration's main argument and also the one that, that ended up being central to the ruling in this case. Um, basically, their argument, you know, centered around the fact that there's actually appears to be two dual investigations into these allegations. There's the city council investigation, and there's a, a, a parallel investigation being done by the local office of inspector general. Um, now, what the Cantrell administration is arguing here is that um, the council should not be investigating this while the office of inspector general is investigating it. And, and to explain, you know, what, why they're making this argument, we, we actually have to go back to 2019, you know, if you remember the, the collapse of the Hard Rock Hotel site, um, you know, that was a, a big scandal in the city. There were big questions around um, whether there was corruption in the safety and permits office, which we later found out there was. Right. Um, but but at, at that time, we had a similar situation where the Office of Inspector General and the city council had both announced that they wanted to launch investigations into the collapse. Now, at that time in 2019, we had a different inspector general, um, and that inspector general wrote a public letter to the city council asking them to step down from their investigation. He argued that basically he, he argued that the city council, their, their public investigation would, would possibly interfere with his investigation. There are some baseline differences between a city council investigation and an Office of Inspector General investigation. Inspector General investigations are, are confidential. Um, you know, you don't, as they, you know, get documents, they don't release them to the public. And really, we don't hear much of anything until a final report is released. Um, if, if a report is ever released at all, um, you know, in, in the Hard Rock case, for example, the Inspector General never released a report. Sort of like a, um, let me interrupt, sort of like a grand jury, almost? Yeah, it, it, it's... It, it definitely feels more like a, a like a Department of Justice investigation, something like that. That that again is is really secretive until they feel comfortable that they can give a a you know a, a very clear conclusion. You okay. know, but yeah, I mean, on on the other hand, a council investigation is done in in full public view. You know, the 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 hearings are done in public view as documents come in. You know, they're, they're usually made available to the public. So very different in nature. So let's let's fast forward um, back to the smart cities investigation. So as of last week, three out of the five um, subpoenaed officials hadn't yet responded. And, you know, the day that their deadline came and went, um, the city attorney reached out to the city council and basically said, we're withholding the documents, the subpoenaed documents until we hear back from the Office of Inspector General. Right. Um, now, it turns out the city attorney had written a letter to the inspector general um, basically saying, hey, back in the Hard Rock investigation, you asked the city council to step down. Are you going to do that in this case? Because, mm -hmm. again, we have these two dueling investigations. Now, uh, off the bat, the council argued that that would not let the administration off the hook. Um, you know, the Office of Inspector General is free to ask 
the council to step down from its investigations, but the council would argue that it still very much has the legal authority to do what it wants, regardless of what the inspector general wants. Okay. Um, but regardless of that, the inspector general, again, a, a new inspector general from the one we had in 2019, responded to the administration and said, I don't see any reason why the council investigation will interfere with mine. And I have no plans to ask them to, to you know, drop their investigation or change their investigation, anything like that. Okay. So after the inspector general says this, the city attorney, you know, gets back to the council and says, okay, I've spoken to the inspector general, um, you know, and after that, I've now instructed these three officials to go ahead, comply with the subpoena, get you the documents as soon as possible. Later that day, the administration filed its lawsuit. And, and I know that was a lot of background, but it's important because the main argument in the lawsuit is that the council should drop its investigation because it would interfere with the inspector general investigation. Now, they've submitted that lawsuit despite a letter from the inspector general earlier that day explicitly saying that it would not interfere and that he would not intervene. Um, so, you know, again, th their main argument um, seems to have been disputed by the inspector general himself, you know, the same day the lawsuit was um, submitted. So and, that was kind of the central argument in the case. Okay. And, I mean, that, and, and, and you know, sort of, sort of to reiterate here, that the, the fact that it, it appears that the city's, the city attorney had advised the administration to comply at least that's that's how the letter seems to read and that's how the council's reading it is that the administration you know they've said several times that they believe that the city administration that the Cantrell administration is in fact going against the advice of its own lawyer which is supposed which is supposed to be who is supposed to be in charge of these sorts of matters mm. all right and now it's been thrown out essentially by a judge their their attempts yeah. okay so yeah and, and you know it, you know I, there wasn't in, in his ruling, Judge Cates, Judge Sidney Cates, you know, he didn't, um, it wasn't a lengthy um, ruling, at least vocally, um, but but he did kind of center in on, on that contradiction we just talked about. The fact that the main thing that our administration was pointing to, their main piece of evidence, was this 2019 letter from a previous inspector general about an entirely different investigation. Mm. Um, you know, so, so that was really, you know, what ended up getting the uh, lawsuit, basically what would, you know, led to that decision. Now, we, we expect there to be appeals here. Um, the legal fight is probably not over, um, but it does allow the council to, to continue forward with its investigation. I'll, I'll note that, you know, we're talking at, you know, 9 a.m. on Thursday. Uh, I'm about to head to the city council meeting um, where they're going to go ahead with contempt of council charges for two officials who have not yet responded to the subpoena. Now, one thing this lawsuit sought to do was block them from, you know, voting on these contempt charges um, because uh, uh, they, they were trying to get the subpoena dismissed altogether. But now that the, the case um, has been ruled on, the council can go forward and take a vote on these contempt motions. And again, that's going to happen in about 45 minutes. And uh, yeah, we'll get a story out about it. The Cantrell administration obviously has reasons it does not want the council to have this very public investigation into these allegations against her administration. And, and we've seen a, a theme throughout the Smart Cities reporting has been the administration's unwillingness to share very basic information with the city council or the public about this stuff. Um, but I think the court case um, was the first time where we saw a real explicit legal attempt to keep information you know, out of the, out of the public eye. And 
we saw her lose that case. So, you know, I, I think the significance of the lawsuit and now these contempt charges is that, you know, the council is seemingly going to go forward with this investigation, regardless of how hard Cantrell fights to put it down. Um, you know, again, uh, it, it went to the courts, the council defended itself pretty vigorously, and they're moving forward. So again, it, it's kind of the most official attempt by Cantrell yet to shut down this investigation. And, and you know, at least for now, it didn't work. It's Clifton Davis and who it's else? Arthur Walton. Who's um, the, the director of intergovernmental relations. Yeah. Can I, can I ask you, Michael, so what, what is going on? There was a third official here, uh, Josh Cox. What what is, is they're not considering contempt charges for him? You touched on that yesterday in your story. What's going on there? Yeah, it's a little unclear to me. So Josh Cox um, was one of the three officials who had blown their deadline for the subpoena, according to the city council. Now, at the time, we were told that he had handed over a physical notebook um, so far, and that's all he'd handed over. Handed over. I don't know if they if he has since sent more documents to the council, but according to a council official right now, they're trying to determine whether he has fully complied before going ahead with a contempt charge for him as well. I, I don't know if this is a factor, but Josh Cox recently left the administration. I mean, in between the time that they announced a potential uh, contempt charge against Cox and yesterday, his departure from the city was publicly announced. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but um, mm. that, that's... I, I will say I will say that, uh, you know, if you read through the original email dump from the, the Jonathan Rhodes files, it kind of appears. And, and, you know, obviously we haven't seen everything, so I have no idea. But it kind of appears from those original emails that perhaps Josh Cox, you know, sort of was involved in, in the initial phases of this, made some intros, got people together and may have gotten out of it shortly thereafter to work on, you know, the other things he's working on. So I, I'm wondering if he's saying that all my emails on this are already contained in the Jonathan Rhodes files. Yeah, I, I think that's possible. Um, you know, again, yeah, like Charles was saying, um, I was actually a little surprised to see Josh's Cox name on the subpoena list, um, only because there hadn't been so much we'd seen from about his involvement. I do think, you know, his significance here, you know, his significance, again, is not that he was super involved, maybe throughout the entire project, but he may have been, you know, one of the original or the original points of contact for Ignite Cities, this consultant group that is kind of landed at the center of many of these allegations. Um, you know, he seems like he made some initial introductions. So I think that there are some questions there. But to Charles's point, it's possible that with what has already been handed over to the council, plus the notebook he turned over with his notes in them, that, you know, at this point, he argues he's fully complied. But uh, I'm sure we'll find out. We don't totally know about full compliance, but with his departure, does that change in any way how he's subject to the subpoena? It, well, I mean, he's still... It, the. The council has the power, if I remember correctly, and let me check the law on this. To subpoena anybody, right? Yeah, they can subpoena anyone who within the city of New Orleans, I believe. And so, so no, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be limited to just administration officials necessarily. Wait, and then are the charges being referred to the DA? Well, that's another thing. Uh, I I don't know. What does it say? What Michael? What does it say in the uh, in the motion? Um, okay, so it says that. The city attorney or such other person with lawful prosecutorial power that she may designate in the event she deems there to be a legal conflict that would otherwise preclude her from effectuating this motion um, be and hereby is instructed to commence any and all appropriate proceedings, blah, 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 to adjudicate guilty of the crime of contempt of counsel. 
So yeah, it, it's what they described in the first place that it kind of defaults the language defaults to the to the assistant city of t attorney because this would be you know this would be a, a municipal code matter and that's handled by the city attorney, um, but it allows for the possibility that it could go to the DA instead, which seems likely because the city attorney has been advising the city on compliance. Charles, what you, I mean, this is. I, do you think there's any chance that? Williams actually charges these people? I have no idea. I have no idea what he would do here. Yeah. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. More to come. Well, Michael, thanks for staying on it. Thank you, Carol. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, Nick Crastel, and Lens Editor Charles Maldonado. Hi, I'm Ann Muller chief operating officer at The Lens. The Lens aims to engage and empower the residents of New Orleans and the Gulf Coast. If you'd like the inside scoop on what stories we're pursuing, what events and initiatives are coming up, and to learn more about the people who report at The Lens, subscribe today to our newsletter at thelensnola.org slash newsletters. Thank you. Marta in Schools, the Louisiana Legislative Auditor, released a report on teacher effectiveness that had some interesting information about New Orleans public schools. Can you tell us about what it said? Yeah, so what, one thing I think that, you know, people kind of knew innately but weren't quite sure what was happening uh, in the city here was that, you know, teachers' certification, um, people who go through, you know, kind of the official channels and traditional programs and get certified through the state to be a teacher, um, are more effective teachers than uncertified teachers. And what we learned in this audit performed by the legislative, state legislative auditor um, was that New Orleans has one of the lowest certification rates um, in the state. In fact, 54% of teachers in the city are likely to be uncertified, whereas that number throughout the state is only 12.5%. What measurement do you know that did they use to uh, measure effectiveness of certification as opposed to non-certified teachers? Yeah, there's a thing that state uses every year called value-added model, and um, it looks at teachers um, and how their students do on state standardized tests, um, and then it also includes some qualitative information, like reviews from principals and other people in the building. Why does New Orleans have so few certified teachers? Obviously, this goes right along with um, the charter movement, education reform movement. Um, charters are free to hire uncertified teachers, so it is not a surprise that we have fewer certified teachers. Um, I just, you know, obviously it is newsworthy and noteworthy that these, those numbers are so different from other uh, districts in the state. Traditional schools also hire teachers who are on alternative certification tracks, but the charter movement and, and organizations like TFA have been aligned with each other for a very, very long time, particularly some of the big, uh, some of the bigger networks like KIPP. KIPP has always been well known for hiring a lot of TFA teachers who are coming in as uncertified teachers, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to uncertified teachers going through a traditional program who, who go into a classroom to act as an assistant teacher, mm -hmm. TFA provides uncertified teachers who can and, and often are on, a, on an alternative cert certification track, but while, but it provides them at uncertified teachers to be the primary classroom teacher for their two-year commitment. Did the New Orleans School District respond yet to, to this report? They did. They um, they talked a lot about, um, you know, teacher shortages, which is a real problem, not only in New Orleans, but nationwide. Um, you know, fewer 
fewer people are attending school to become teachers. Um, I think, you know, there's a, there are a lot of things that are happening in the news today and can maybe understand why that's happening. I personally have known, I think, two or three friends who were teachers who left the job over the last year, which mm-hmm. I think has compounded facts of the pandemic and, you know, school violence and a lot of other unknowns. Um, but they talked a lot about the teacher shortage, how they're working to remedy that. And then, you know, the, the report also offered some suggestions such as, you know, increased teacher pay showed that teachers would stay longer when they have been in the job longer, they're more effective. Um, also, you know, offering better benefits uh, is another thing that attracts teachers to stay longer. And, you know, in the city here, um, in the charter networks, we do have some older charter networks that maintained the traditional uh, teacher's retirement system of the Louisiana retirement program, uh, which is very expensive for a, a school district to maintain. Uh, but we also have a lot of networks that, you know, offer 401ks or 403bs, which are the equivalent in a nonprofit setting. Um so those are a little more flexible to move from job to job, um, but might not be as um, might not be as good of a pension guarantee as TRSL is. Okay. And in other education news, it appears that the NOLA Public Schools District has some of the same property insurance headaches that the rest of the city is dealing with. What happened, and did they say why? Yeah. So we learned this week that the district's property insurance is going to jump fifty percent, which, like you said, is a problem or a headache that a lot of New Orleanians are having um, if they weren't dropped altogether from their insurance company. I know a lot of insurers have pulled out of the market because it's been a, it has been a truly a brutal few couple of years here with tropical weather um, storms and disasters and the recovery from that. So we know it's going to increase from about 7 million and change to a little over 11 million. You know, also what they, they talked about was that we do have these, um, the taxpayers passed a millage in 2014 that would offer money to you know offer capital repairs but what we're finding now is that 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 program has severe limitations as far as you Mm -hmm. know creating space um, and emergency spaces to move schools to because the money is tied to children so you couldn't for instance um, weatherproof hardproof improve an empty building right now in case we run into more hurricane issues this season you Assume that the district had anticipated an increase, but do you think that this big of an increase might have been a surprise? I think it was. I mean, they they referenced a twenty-five um, percent increase generally that they were seeing, mm. and they're personally seeing a fifty percent increase. Oh, ouch! And what kind of lo- what kind of damage did schools suffer? Yeah, during um, Hurricane Ida, we had thirty almost thirty campuses that received damage. Most of those were minor. I think the biggest one that we saw was Kipps uh, Frederick Douglass High School on St. Cloud Avenue. Um, I don't I can't remember if they were in the middle of a window project or if you know windows were out. But basically, what happened is a bunch of the windows in their courtyard blew in, so a ton of water, a ton of rain came in and sat in that building. And then we had you know we didn't have power for a week, so you know moisture and heat and <laughs> are not a good combination. Right. And all this on the eve of hurricane season. Now, here we go again. Exactly. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Marta. Thank you. Okay. Nick, you were in Baton Rouge for the second part of a major trial over prison health care this week. This is an ongoing trial. It's been going on for a while. Remind us what what the suit is about. Yeah, it's a lawsuit about health care and disability accommodations at um, Louisiana State Penitentiary at Angola. Um, which is the the state's largest prison, somewhere around 5,000 prisoners at at any given time, fluctuates some. The lawsuit was filed in 2015 on behalf of of prisoners at Angola 
who said that they weren't receiving adequate medical care, that, that the conditions were going undiagnosed and they weren't receiving proper treatment, and also a subclass of, of prisoners with disabilities who said that they weren't being accommodated, that the, the prison was in violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act um, and the Rehabilitation Act. So that, you know, that was seven years ago, this, this lawsuit was filed. It ended up going to trial in 2018. Um, there was an 11-day hearing, which was known as the, the liability phase uh, of, the, of the trial. And that was just to determine whether or not the prison was, in fact, in violation of the Constitution and, and of these uh, federal, federal laws. There was a, a long delay. There, there was post-trial filings and, and, and COVID, and um, the judge actually made an a insight visit to the, to the prison. And then finally made a ruling in uh, March of last year, which found that the prison was in violation of the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment um, due to their lack of health care, and also in violation in, in some respects uh, to the of the ADA. So this new phase of the trial that started on Monday is basically to determine a couple of things. One, whether or not the prison is still in violation of these things and also what needs to be done to, to remedy them, if, if so. Okay, so they prevailed. Tell me about the delay. Why? And, and back then, if they prevailed, why didn't the corrections begin right away? Well, well that's right. it, it, so question one, first, I'm unclear on, in part, but I will say this is a, this is a major and very complex case. Um, the, the eventual ruling on liability was something like 125 pages long. Mm. Um, so there's, you know, there's a lot the judge had to consider after phase one, there were a number of, you know, post-trial, uh, briefs submitted by both sides and at new evidence submitted by both sides. And the, the trial took, took place at, at the tail end of 2018, I would say. So I would say that, uh, on top of on top of the complexity and the post trial briefings, uh, you're you're likely to have uh, COVID play a role in some of this delay as well. Okay, of course. Yeah, that I think that's right, and I don't have a, a totally clear answer on on why exactly it took so long, but I think that Charles is. And, and to get to question two, I mean, the, the, you know, why, what, what is the necessity of the second phase? It's basically, so the judge has made the determination that, in fact, these violations do exist. Now the question is, what do we do about it? Um, and the, the State Department of Public Safety and Corrections, uh, Nick can go into more detail on this, is essentially saying, well, we have fixed the problems. And the, uh, and, and the plaintiffs are saying, well, no, you haven't. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, the question is, you you ask why didn't they start fixing this right away? And and the Department of Corrections would say we did. Um, and you know that that's the the attorney on Monday basically told the judge it's a new day here. Um, mm. None of the issues that that you ruled on, many of which occurred prior to the trial in 2018. So much of it, you know, much of the evidence was from as far back as 2012. Or and they say none of that happens anymore. We've fixed these things. On so, the other hand, the plaintiffs are basically saying nothing's changed. Um, all of the issues that, that we've brought up, all of the issues the judge ruled on are still occurring. So, I mean, literally relitigating is possible now. They may have to have the judge go out again and do another site visit to prove, in the, fact. Yeah, go ahead. The judge will go out and do another site visit um, after this after this phase of the trial, which mm -hmm. lasts two weeks. And, you know, it's a it's sort of a 
tricky proposition for for these civil rights attorneys because they need to present evidence that shows you know almost up to the the current day that these things are still happening while you know the department of corrections can show and and they may not have as much access whereas the department of corrections can kind of show things it changes that they've made, you know, as, as recently as weeks or months ago, right. um, that sh- show they're, uh, more compliant with the judges recommendations uh, rulings. Yeah. So this goes on, you said for two weeks. Yeah. But that's just the arguments. That's just oral arguments, if you will. And then perhaps, or, or you suggested then that, that there will be proof necessary with, vi- with visits by the judge. Yeah, the judge will make a site visit, um, and you know we'll see how long. I, I highly doubt that that we'll have another you know delay as long as the the one from the previous phase. I think that there is some more urgency here to the if you know it's the remedy phase. They want they want to come up with some remedy if right. it's necessary, and you know I think that 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 will be a little more expedited than than the previous um, phase. Are site visits, is the site visit necessary? I guess I'm harping on this because it seems like it's just more, yet more delay for what has been decided, which was decided in 2018. I would think that with with video and other technology or other evidence, evidentiary presentation, they could potentially just show what in fact they're trying to argue. You know, the evidence that's presented by both sides is so selective and oh. and um, curated that for me, even sitting there and trying to weigh it, and you can you can create vastly different pictures of, of what's happening in mm-hmm. a in this institution based on you know who you talk to, and you know both sides even showed pictures and said you know this is what the the clinical rooms look like now. And who knows what, if those are representative of what things look like in, in, you know, on a day-to-day basis. And, you know, I think site visits have, I'm sure have their own limitations, but I think for someone to get in there and to really see what's going on and and talk to some prisoners who haven't been selected by either side um, and kind of see how things function could be very useful. You know, I I haven't been on one of these. I'm not exactly sure how they work, but... I do see how how it can be beneficial. Right. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks, you guys. Have a good week. Thank you, Carolyn. Bye, guys. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan, public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Marta Jusen, Nick Krastel, and Lens editor, Charles Maldonado. You can read all the week's other news along with opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.